0: Last week we finished through chapter 10 in Hebrews, and we're going to pick up in chapter 11 this week. We're going to be talking about faith, okay? This is the faith chapter. I like to refer to it as God's hall of faith. Just like the NFL has their hall of fame, God has his hall of faith. Um, And we see many great examples of Old Testament faith in this chapter We're going to go through them, and in citing these Old Testament examples, the author, who I believe is Paul, um, I'm sure you figured that out by now, he draws some continuity between the ruling principle of faith before Christ and after Christ. He brings the believers before Christ under the same principle of faith as the believers after Christ, as we are. Before Christ came, these believers, these saints, were looking towards Christ. They had that expectation of Christ, the Messiah, who would come. After Christ, and in this point in history, we have the incredible privilege of looking back on Christ. We see what he's already done for us. It's already been accomplished. We've already been saved if you've accepted that gift. So we look back on Christ, and what a blessing that is, where the substance of this shadow cast by the law is clearly seen. And truthfully, it is at the end of the ages, as the author has said. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it The elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In these first three verses of chapter 11, faith is being described. The author is defining his terms for us. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for. Substance here means an assurance or confidence. So faith is the confidence, the assurance of things hoped for. Biblical faith is not an emotional kind of wishful thinking. Rather, it's an inner conviction based on the word of God. That is what faith is. Paul tells us in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is encompassed in the Word of God. God never asks us to abandon reason in order to follow him. In fact, there are many examples in the New Testament that instruct us to use reason to determine if Christianity is true. In Jude 10, we're told not to be like unreasoning animals. That's taken from the New American Standard. In Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 38, we're told to love God with our mind, with our reason. In John 10, 37 and 38, Jesus told the Jews to examine his works to determine if he was in fact God, which he claimed to be. He literally told them to look at the evidence he provided. Acts 1, 2, and 3, Jesus stayed with his followers after his crucifixion and resurrection to provide additional evidence to them that he had, in fact, raised from the dead. He provided additional evidence. God doesn't ask us to dismiss evidence. He asks us to look at evidence to determine Our faith, blind faith, is nothing that the Christian has to worry about. That's something that the evolutionists, the naturalists, they have to worry about. We are called to an active faith, and it is not blind. We have evidence that support our position. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Evidence is proof. Faith. Bears witness to our hearts that the promises of God, which we can't see, are true and are effective. Faith is that witness for us. Think of faith as a fishing bobber. You throw your line out, the bobber sits on top of the water, but your hook is submerged and you can't see what's going on around your hook. You can't see the fish nibbling it, but you can see the bobber bobbing up and down. When that fish is biting onto your bait, you see evidence of that in the bobber. You cannot see the hook directly. Faith is our bobber. It's our connection to things that we can't see. Faith is our indicator of those things we can't see, the invisible things. Verse 2 reads, For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Elders here is speaking of forefathers, and that's another translation from that word. In this context, we know that the author is specifically speaking of the forefathers to the Hebrew people. He's writing to the Hebrews, and he's talking about those that had come before them. A good testimony. When I hear a good testimony, immediately a report card pops in my mind. If you receive a good testimony from your teachers, they're saying, hey, he did good. He, he passed all his classes. Now, God gives two grades. You either pass or you fail. And that grade is determined by your faith. By their faith, God bears witness or he gives testimony that these elders, these forefathers, are righteous. In other words, it is by faith that the forefathers of the Israelites had a passing report card. By faith. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Interesting. The worlds here refers to the entire universe. It also refers to all the ages contained within our universe. In other words, the entirety of the time-space continuum in which we have this physical existence. Everything is encompassed by the worlds. History is not a random unfolding of events, but rather, history is his story laid out through the centuries. It's intentional. The writer explains that it is by faith that we understand the ages were framed by God. And the physical matter that fills the ages, everything that we can see, were made of invisible things. It's by faith that we understand this. We do also need to understand that no matter what our worldview consists of, whether you believe in creation, whether you believe in evolution, whether you fall somewhere in between, doesn't matter. That requires faith. When we're talking about the origin of the universe, how everything began, and we do know that it did have a starting point. Matter is not infinite. Matter is finite. When we're talking about the beginning of everything, it's, all, it's understood by everyone that no one was around to witness that first event. Makes sense. It takes faith, no matter what your worldview, no matter your view on origins, when you're looking back to something that nobody witnessed. Now, the evolutionists, they will place their faith in man's word and in naturalistic processes. As a believer, I place my faith in God's word, and that is a much more sure testimony. That is the only way, the only source that we can 100% believe when it comes to things at the beginning. Before the beginning was, God was. He was the only witness to that event of creation. That's why his word is worth so much more than the word of man. It's remarkable to me the things that science has accomplished, even in just the last 30 or so years. We've come so far. We've made leaps and bounds in our understanding of this physical world, but there's so much that we are ignorant of. In fact, recent findings have shown that about 98% of all matter is invisible, not detectable by our eyes. 98%. That means we can only see 2% of what actually exists. And then how much do we actually know about that 2%? Not much. This goes to show the feebleness of our minds, of our modern science. And as science progresses throughout history, we keep discovering things of smaller and smaller magnitudes. The roots of our atomic theory can be traced back to Greek philosophers like Leucippus, Democritus, and Epicurus. However, it wasn't solidified in its modern way until the 1660s, when Robert Boyle supposed that atoms congregated to form various arrangements that he termed corpuscles. Now we know these as molecules, arrangements of atoms. Atoms, at this time, were thought to be the smallest unit of matter. We now know, as evidenced by atomic bombs, that atoms can be split. Scientists discovered subatomic particles, even smaller than atoms. You've got your electron, your neutron, your proton. And these things make up atoms, which make up molecules, um, and it just keeps going down and down. Now, even more recently, we've discovered that protons and neutrons are composed of certain components. Uh, they're called gluons and quarks. Okay, and this is way beyond me now, so I'm gonna stop there. But gluons and quarks make up protons and neutrons, which were previously thought as the smallest things ever. It's interesting the word of man compared with the word of God. It's taken man, however, six, seven thousand years to figure out what God gave us right here. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen, all of our matter, were not made of things which are visible. Invisible things, these quarks, gluons, protons, neutrons, electrons, make up everything that we can actually see. Very interesting that we can derive that simply from the word of God. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered... To God, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. As we move into verses four through 40 through the end of this chapter, we're going to see many, many examples of faith, and all of them coming from the Old Testament. Has anyone ever shown you how to do something? I hope so. I'd be concerned if nobody's shown you how to do something. It's like throwing a baseball. Now, I can tell someone, hey, you want to hold the ball in your right hand, you want to bring it back to your ear, and then you want to let it go straight forward. How do you think that's going to turn out? Not good if I'm just verbally telling them. I'll show them how to do it. I'll pick up a ball, say, hey, hold it like this, bring it back here, then let it go forward they can see me doing that they can probably pick it up easier right some lessons are better caught than taught and that's true of faith and the author of hebrews recognizes this it's one thing to tell someone how to do something and it's another thing to show them how to do it the author in verses 4 through 40 is going to give us examples demonstrations Of faith. And my prayer this morning is that some of the faith of these guys rubs off on us as we go through and we study them. The first example we have here in verse 4 is Cain and Abel. Okay, and you can find this back in Genesis 4. The main point that I want to make here is that true faith always responds to God on His terms, not ours. There's a certain way that God wants to be worshipped, and that is the way that we need to worship him. Cain and Abel both offered God sacrifices. If you remember back to Genesis 4, only one of those sacrifices was accepted. It was deemed an acceptable offering, and that was Abel's sacrifice. Abel offered the blood of a lamb, while Cain offered the fruit of his field. The blood of the lamb versus the work of Cain's hands. Which one do you think came out on top? It was Abel's. The blood of the lamb was accepted while Cain's offering was rejected. Now, it's estimated that Cain was about 129 years old when this story came about, when he offered this unacceptable sacrifice. You know what that tells me? tells me he had been offering acceptable sacrifices for quite a time. What do you think came in between him and another acceptable sacrifice? I would propose that it was pride. Maybe Cain thought, well, this time I want to worship God my way, not his way. The way that had been prescribed. God demonstrated to Adam and Eve that the penalty for sin was death when they needed coverings that were better than a fig leaf, (laughs) and God had to kill the lamb to clothe them. The sacrifice was made for their sin. Cain, now 129-ish years old, makes this unacceptable sacrifice. Thinking, you know, I'll, I'll come to God my own way this time. But it doesn't work like that. God rejected Cain's offering of fruit and accepted Abel's offering of his firstborn lamb. You don't come to God on your own terms, but his. There are people who think, as long as I'm sincere, God will accept me. As long as I'm sincere, God will let me into heaven. Doesn't matter what I believe, doesn't matter what I place my faith in, as long as I'm sincere that's so wrong. That is not the case at all. If you really love God, you'll love him the way he wants to be loved. Faith is accepting God's terms, not bargaining with him to get my own way. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The story of Enoch can be found in Genesis five twenty one through 24. Enoch experienced what every Christian dreams of. He was raptured. He walked with God, and God took him. Verse 5 tells us that he pleased God. And in the next sentence, tells us how he pleased him. By faith. In fact, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Verse 6 reads, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder, of those who diligently seek him. So first, we have to believe that God exists. That is very obviously the baseline here. But after that, we must believe that God will bless us when we seek him. And he will. Have you ever sat down to read your Bible, prayed, God, please reveal something about you to me this morning? As I open your word, speak through the text, let me hear you. Has has the word ever returned void? Have you ever not been blessed by that little session? Of course not. He is faithful, and he blesses us when we diligently seek him. Noah, from Genesis 6 through 9. Our text says, By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It says he was divinely warned of things not yet seen. You know, God warned Noah that the world was going to experience a flood that would wipe out every living thing On the land, Noah had a revelation from God. God spoke directly to Noah. Now, up to this point, there had never been rain on the earth. And here God is telling Noah, I'm going to bring this rain down and it is going to fill the earth and it's going to subdue it. Noah, I'm sure, was like, What do you mean? What is this rain? Might as well say it's going to swivel swabble. Nobody knows what that means. But yes, Noah, it is going to rain. I'm going to bring down waters on the earth, and it's going to consume the land. You need to build this ark. You need to build this vessel to preserve you and your family. Noah was counted righteousness and a... Noah was counted righteous... In a wicked and perverse generation. There are other examples of people staying righteous during wicked generations. You can look at Lot. Lot was able to preserve himself, but he fell short when it came to his family. His daughters turned against him, and they got him drunk, and they slept with him, and they each bore his children. He was not able to deliver his daughters out of that wicked city, though he delivered himself. I mentioned that rain had not been a thing prior to the flood. It tells us in, I believe it's the last verse of Genesis 2, that a dew came up from the ground and watered the face of the earth. And that is how the plants got water. Um, Nobody really had to work for much. To be honest, it was a very temperate environment, uh, somewhat tropical by today's standards. Noah had no basis to frame this idea of a global flood. It took pure faith to believe what God was telling him. Our text says that Noah was moved with godly fear. The threat of a flood was real to him because he had faith in what God was telling him. It wasn't because he had observed floods in the past. He hadn't even observed rain. The promise of God, which was in this case a flood, was real to Noah. If he didn't believe what God said, he wouldn't have been moved by a godly fear or reverence. This means he was in awe of God because of the faith that he had. Verse 8, by faith Abraham... Obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham is spoken of in Genesis twelve one through nine verse eight says he went out not knowing where he was going. You see Noah believed without seeing, but Abraham believed Without knowing, I think for most, if not all of us, and I'll include myself here, trusting God when we can see the plan is much easier than trusting God blindly. If God will just tell me the plan, if He'll just let me in on where we're going, I can get on board because I trust Him enough to trust that he's going to bring about that plan. My faith is tested when God asks me to move and I don't know where he's taking me. That is difficult. That is hard. But Abraham went out. He was called out of his homeland not knowing where he was going. He took each step in faith. By faith, He dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country. Author Kent Hughes helps us think of Abraham's faith in more modern terms. He writes, imagine God promising you and your descendants the land of Guatemala, and in obedience you travel there and live the rest of your life in your camper, along with your son's families and their campers, moving from place to place. You remain an alien for the remainder of your sojourn, without full citizenship rights, a perpetual outsider. See, that's much the same as what Abraham was experiencing. He was told to go somewhere, uh, God promising that that land would one day be his descendants. Abraham never saw that promise realized. He lived his whole life as an alien in that land, the land of Canaan. Abraham was promised a land he never fully possessed. But it didn't matter to Abraham because he was looking forward to a better place. His hope wasn't only on earthly land, but in a heavenly home. He looked forward to that heavenly home, the city whose builder and maker is God. Looking forward. Faith making that future reality a present reality for Abraham. For he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. In verse 11, we see Sarah brought into the picture. Sarah was Abraham's wife. We see her story in Genesis 1719, Genesis eighteen eleven through fourteen, and Genesis twenty one two. God promised Sarah and Abraham a son. But there was a little problem. Both Abraham and Sarah were well past the age that they could have children naturally. No problem. No problem for God. Romans four eighteen through 22 reads, and this is uh, in reference to Abraham, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, Since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was accounted to him for righteousness. verse 19 through 20 in Romans 4, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham didn't consider the fact that his body was old a hindrance to God's promise, to God's plan. He didn't consider it. In fact, it says that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. There was no doubt. Now, although his faith was ultimately counted to him as righteousness, there were times when Abraham slipped up, just like any of us. And I love to see the human element coming out in the Bible. We have these stories of the greats of the Old Testament, the hall of faith. Yet, in Scripture, wouldn't you hate to have your your mess-ups recorded in Scripture? We have so many examples of these guys slipping up and failing. Noah got drunk and passed out naked. Abraham lied in saying that Sarah, his wife, was his sister. Twice. Jacob stole his brother's birthright. All these guys, who are giants of faith, messed up. But in the end, it was counted to Abraham as righteous. Sarah actually laughed at God When she heard that she was going to bear a son. But in the end, she judged God faithful to bring about his promise. I find this easy to relate to. I can relate to Sarah. Sometimes it's hard to wrap my mind around the things God has promised. But in the end, I do find faith because I trust the one who made the promises. I stand on his word. And his word is worth so much more than literally anyone else's. I stand on his word. All these men, and lady, were counted as faithful. So don't be discouraged because you slip up. It's going to happen. But God's grace allows you to return to the race. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country." Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Yes, the author is talking about the temporal promises made to Abraham, Noah, and the patriarchs. But there's another promise that is woven into this little passage, these three verses, that we need to understand. The promise God made to Abraham that the serpent would bruise his heel and his seed would crush the serpent's head. This is the underlying promise. You have those temporal promises talked about, all these died in faith, not having received the promises, plural, those temporal promises that each of them had made to them by God. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embrace them, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They're looking outside of the world. They're looking to their heavenly homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, still on Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. I invite you to turn back to Genesis 22 with me. Keep your place in Hebrews because we'll be coming right back. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. In verse 1 and 2, I'll read that for you. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham and he said here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. I don't think Abraham was like Oh great, he's telling me to go somewhere, he hadn't even told me again. I don't think that was his heart here. Verse one says Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, God tests Abraham's faith by asking for his only son, Isaac. It's interesting to me that God refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son. We know that he had another son with Hagar named Ishmael. But God did not count the works of Abraham's hands, the works of his flesh, as part of his plan. God reserved that title of only son for the son that God promised Abraham. There was no way in the natural that Abraham and Sarah were going to have a child together. They tried to take it into their own hands by hooking up Abraham with the maidservant. That did produce a son, but it was not the son of promise. The son of promise, through which Abraham's seed would turn into the great nation of Israel, was in Isaac. God does not acknowledge the works of the flesh. He acknowledges his plan. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So what does he do? So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. In verse 3, the text tells us that Abraham rose early in the morning. There was no hesitation in Abraham. He rose early. It doesn't say Abraham slept in a few more minutes and then got up and obeyed God. You see, delayed obedience is still disobedience. Delayed obedience is still disobedience disobedience. You ask your kid, hey, you mind taking out the trash? They say, sure, right after I'm done with this video game. I'll get to it when I can. You're not very happy. That is still counted as disobedience. Obedience is immediate. Abraham rose early in the morning. You never see accounts of the great men in the Bible recorded as sleeping late into the afternoon, getting up and obeying God. It's always Noah rose early to build the ark. It's Abraham rose early to obey God. Obedience isn't just doing what is asked, but it's doing it when you're asked. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. Verse 4 in our uh, Genesis 22 text It says, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. After three days of travel, Abraham sees the place where he would offer his son. Are you seeing any parallels here? Three days. In his heart, Isaac was dead to Abraham for three days. Not literally, but in his heart. Abraham had already sacrificed Isaac in his heart. It was his intention to do that for God. For three days, his only son was dead to him. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. While Abraham relented that Isaac would die... He also remembered God's promise to him that from the seed of Isaac, a great nation would be raised. Abraham didn't know how this would be accomplished, but he had faith that God would accomplish it and that he would accomplish it through his son, Isaac. Up to this point, there had been no resurrections. Yet Abraham, we see in Hebrews 11, 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham believed, though never seeing it done before, that God could raise Isaac up if that's what he had to do. He didn't know how the promise would be fulfilled, but he believed, through faith, that it would be from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham received his son alive again in a figurative sense. Isaac was never actually sacrificed. In Abraham's heart, he was. And he remained dead for three days. And then, as God stopped him from actually sacrificing his son, that was effectively and figuratively raising Isaac from the dead. Interesting picture of God the Father, his son, his only son, Jesus Christ, dead for three days and being risen. Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac, is in the same area, the same little range as um, Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. The same place. This picture is immaculate. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Isaac, by faith, assigned things to his sons by blessing him. These things were in the future, yet he treated them as if they were in the present. He took future things and applied them presently. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. He had faith that those things to come would actually come to pass. In a similar way, verse 21, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So Jacob, who was called Israel at this time, Bless the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, concerning things yet to come, as if they were present things, the faith that those things would come to pass. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. To understand verse 22 better. Let's go back and look at Genesis fifty twenty four. It reads, And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We see here that Joseph had no doubt that God would bring the Israelites into Canaan, the promised land, though it had not yet come to pass. This further solidifying his confidence, he asks his posterity to bring his bones into Canaan with them. He had faith that this promise would become a reality for the Israelites, the promise of Canaan, that promised land. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Moses is recorded as having been born in Exodus 2. Moses' parents had faith that he and they would be protected from the king who had ordered all the Hebrew males to be killed. If you defied the Pharaoh, bad things happen. They had faith that God would preserve both their child, Moses, and them from the Pharaoh. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. When given this choice between living a life of luxury, decadence, excess, in the palace of Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world, or living with his people, the Israelites, As a slave, Moses chose to suffer affliction with his people. He looked to a reward in heaven, not on earth, and he chose to suffer while on earth for an eternity with God. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to suffer affliction. With the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This reminds me of how Eskimos used to kill wolves. They would dip their knife in blood, let it freeze. It's like a little knife popsicle. They would stick it in the ground. The wolves would come by, start licking the blood off of the knife. By the time they got down to the blade, their tongue was numb and They liked the taste of blood. They thought that little popsicle tasted lovely. They didn't even realize that they were shredding their tongue, and eventually they were tasting their own blood. They would bleed out because they kept licking that knife, not knowing they were tasting their own blood. Sin works the same way. The passing pleasures of sin. At first, it tastes good till you get down to the blade. And the so dangerous part about that is you can't always tell when the pleasure ends and the destruction begins because you're so used to that taste of blood. Jesus said, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Now not literally, don't cut your arm off. But if something is causing you to sin, Don't whittle away at it. Don't go step by step. Just cut it out. Just stop it. Because eventually you will not be able to discern the pleasure from the destruction. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses could see the Pharaoh, and he did see the Pharaoh. He saw all of the wealth, all of the power encompassed in this one man. But Moses endured as if he could see God, because he had faith. Though invisible, Moses' faith allowed him to treat God as visible, seeing the power that God held. Faith makes the invisible visible. Remember the fishing bobber. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. It was by faith he sprinkled the blood of the Passover lamb. He believed in its power to save. Another interesting symbolism, the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ sacrificed for our sins. All we have to do is apply the blood. If we believe that that blood is effective for our salvation, that's all that needs to be done. It is by faith that we make that choice. Verse 29, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. They, of course, refers to the Israelites, I have no doubt that this act took faith. You see the waters piled up on each side of you. I imagine it being a straight wall of water. On both sides and trusting God to hold it back for you as you walk through the middle of it looking up, no telling how tall these walls were of water. That's big-time faith. And I don't know if it's just me, but I've always wondered if a fish was swimming along and didn't know that the water stopped, poked out into the air, and fell straight down on somebody's head. Has anybody else wondered that? No? Well, now you have. (laughs) I think it would be quite humorous to be walking along and have a fish fall on your head. That's neither here nor there. Verse 30. By the faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, this, I think, is probably one of the most impressive shows of communal faith that we have recorded in Scripture. Day after day, the Israelites marched around this walled city. Day after day, nothing happened. I can just imagine the conversations that these soldiers who were marching had with their wives when they came home at night. Hey, honey, how was your day? Did you kill anybody? Did Did you do anything crazy? No, honey, we were just marching again. Oh, well, how'd it go? What happened? Same as yesterday, nothing happened. For six days, this went on. For six days, they had the same exact conversations. Then on the seventh day, something miraculous did happen. What was that little boy from Incredibles saying? When he was asked, hey, what are you waiting for? Something incredible to happen. That is what I, I imagine these guys thinking. Day after day, faith. Finally, on the seventh day, that faith, that promise was realized. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Rahab showed her confession. um, I'm sorry, Rahab showed her faith in the confession to the spies. She said, I know that Jehovah has given you the land. It's already a done deal. Jehovah, your God, is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Her confession was that she had faith that God, Jehovah, was the true God. And that he had already delivered her land to the Israelites. Believing that the spies were on the winning side, she joined them. She received them with peace knowing that God had already given them the city. Verse 32, we're going to move into rapid-fire faith mode. He's going to go through many, many, many examples of Old Testament faith. And for the time, it would fail us if we went through all of these uh, one by one. But we'll read through it, and then we'll talk about it. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. The author lists out all of these examples, and some of them it's cool because you can pick out which stories he's talking about. They were saved from the mouths of lions, Daniel. Uh, They were saved from fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's cool to look back and try to pick those things out. The author gives these examples of faith. Like him, the time would fail us to go into each one of these. Some were delivered by faith. Some did not escape their trial. But they were, by faith, given the grace to bear up under their present suffering. It is important, it is so important, that we understand that faith will not always save us from a trial. Faith sometimes gives us the grace of God to persevere through a trial. You're not always going to be saved from it. Just like some of these examples were not saved. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. In each of these examples, they received a passing grade because of their faith. Though faith enabled these people to receive promises, plural, they did not receive the promise yet. But now, in Christ, that promise Has been fulfilled. Verse 39 And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. God having provided something better for us, what has the whole book of Hebrews up to chapter 11 been focused on? Jesus is better. God has provided something better for us from the better priest in Jesus, the better sacrifice, the better sanctuary and the better covenant. They all come to a heading in the person of Jesus Christ. Our text says that they should not be made perfect apart from us all along. The plan was to unite the saints of the Old Testament with the saints of the New Testament. They were not to be made perfect or perfected apart from us. So let us pray as we wrap up our study that the faith of these people would rub off on us by our studying them. Paul wrote in Romans 15.4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. The Old Testament was written and is useful for our learning. And we can certainly glean so much from it. Now if I can leave you with just three takeaways from chapter 11. They would be this. One, God works through faith alone. Exercising faith is the only way to please God. Number two, faith is a gift from God through his word and his spirit. Faith is not something that we can just work up ourselves. It doesn't work that way. Number three, Faith is always tested. We see it in this chapter over and over again. And at times, it seems that trusting God may be foolish. But in the end, faith always has the last word. Faith is the ruling principle of the new covenant. The covenant which we enter into when we ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of our lives, that covenant is predicated on God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, faith is worth nothing apart from the object you place your faith in. Each one of you this morning has placed your faith in that chair that you're sitting in. You have faith that it's not going to crumble underneath you. You don't walk up to it and go, Hey, chair, I'm going to test you out a little bit. Okay, a few pounds of pressure. That's good. We're on the right track. Uh, Sit down in it, kind of in a squat, not put all of your weight on it yet. You don't do that. You place your faith in the chair and you just let it have your weight, just sit down in it, and it comes natural to us. I hope that trusting God, placing our faith in God, comes that natural to us. We don't think about it. We rise early in the morning, and we obey. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.